This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We know the long-term care sector is hardest hit in the COVID-19 pandemic. And the new ban forbidding nursing home employees to work in more than one facility has exacerbated the staffing shortage. Earlier this month, the provincial PCs at Queen's Park announced they would be sending teams from hospitals into nursing homes to assist. And then this past week, the premier announced military medics would be sent to the five hardest hit nursing homes in Ontario. Prior to the announcement on the military, Libby Snymer spoke with Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, and Dr. Brian Hodges, Executive Vice President of Education and Chief Medical Officer at the University Health Network. In fact, Dr. Hodges is one of the physicians who volunteered to help out. On the very end of last week, Thursday, we had a call from the Ministry of Health that we were asked to help support the Rakai Centres, which are two homes in downtown Toronto, Sherburne and Wellesley sites. And so immediately, myself and um, the chief uh, doctor and the chief nurse, Dr. Joy Richards, and I together with a lot of our colleagues from infection control and, and the various areas of the hospital did a rapid assessment together under the guidance of their CEO, uh, Sue Graham Nutter. And right away, we started to redeploy. We had uh, an RN go in that night for the first night. And then over the weekend, we covered some, I think, 52 shifts of uh, frontline staff. And Joy and I together have been rounding uh, daily there. Uh-huh. And, and what have you been doing there, Dr. Hodges? Uh, well, <laughs> the, uh, it's important to understand uh, what um, the care needs in a long-term care institution are and what's happened in some of those that have uh, reached a crisis point because of either sickness of staff or staff um, uh, being unable or unwilling to come to work. The staffing levels dropped. Much of the care done in in uh, long-term care is personal support workers. So the vast majority of our staff uh, have been deployed to do frontline work, bathing patients, caring for them, positioning, um, feeding patients. We have also had requests uh, and we've supported with RNs and RPNs to help with uh, covering shifts in medication and uh, basic medical care. Uh, as well as uh, support for areas like palliative care, geriatric services, but also house cleaning and infection prevention and control. Uh, let's bring in Lisa Levin. Uh, so I gather that that this has been repeated throughout the province because uh, we were told that there were 400 requests for help and that they've been answered. How far, Lisa Levin, will that go to relieving the the pressure in long-term care homes? Well, it certainly is a big help, Libby, uh, but I'm not sure how many of the hospitals are bringing forward staff in the way UHN did. Uh, I just, I don't have that information. I do know in a couple of cases, hospitals have not been helpful. And uh, so I know that the ministries tried to bring in home care staff, local health integration network staff. We've also worked with the home care agency to bring staff in. It's a really tough problem 
to try and redeploy people. But certainly UHN has done an amazing job and so have a number of other hospitals. And Dr. Hodges, this is entirely on a volunteer basis, correct? Yes, for now, but I, I think that we're very sensitive to the needs here. And last night uh, we received, uh, or yesterday, a provincial directive that paired up uh, more of us, us with more homes. So today I'm working hard with our team. We now have 13 long-term care homes that will be working together with UHN. Uh, exactly as was stated, it's, a, it's an enormous uh, personnel challenge, and I don't personally believe that volunteers will be enough. I understand there's some consideration underway about the degree to which we might have other ways of redeploying some of our staff from acute care and from other healthcare organizations uh, through redeployment mechanisms to help our long-term care partners. Lisa Levin, I also heard uh, the mayor talk about redeploying city staff. Uh, Would that be useful at all? Absolutely. I know that, for example, in Gray County, they have taken some of the county staff in places that are no longer operating like libraries and uh, training up staff to go into homes and help provide assistance. Uh, They could do things like answering the telephones, liaising with families, helping residents Skype with families, uh, helping with cleaning. There's all kinds of work and uh, any hands are helpful uh, during this time. So yes, if city staff could be redeployed across municipalities across Ontario, That is a definite possibility. Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, and Dr. Brian Hodges, Executive Vice President of Education and Chief Medical Officer at the University Health Network. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The fast-moving pandemic has prompted many people in the medical community to change their opinions about the threat it poses and how to deal with it. One of those individuals is Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a frequent contributor to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. When we first started preparing for COVID-19, she downplayed the danger and ended up taking a lot of flack on social media. Dr. Gorfinkel acknowledges she was wrong about that and her ideas have since changed significantly. She joined Libby to talk about this. It's interesting. You know, I'm a family doctor. So as a family doctor, I, you know, look to my training. I look to my life experience. And then along comes this, which we call the black swan. It suddenly appears unexpectedly. And Was I wrong? Absolutely, I was wrong. And not just about one thing, but about a number of things. First, I was comparing it to influenza, which we now know it is not. I was hopeful that come at the end of influenza season, it would go away. And that's not true either. Looking at the experience in other countries, you know, warm countries like India, they're still having high numbers despite warm weather. So that's not going to take it away. I had felt that the likelihood of a pandemic in the Canadian context was low and was wrong again about that. You and I personally had a conversation about shaking hands. Right. Again wrong. So it's interesting how, you know, the the concept of a family doctor understanding what to do in pandemics is probably not a very good one. We have to look to people with expertise in pandemics to help guide the thinking around this. It's easy to have 2020 hindsight. And the reason I so publicly want to embrace the things that I was wrong on is because it is important that our health leaders do the same, that we create a space of intellectual agility for them, that they can embrace what was done wrong, learn from that, 
and say, okay, we can do better. I think that the response has to be a scientific response and not an emotional response. I think that for our, our health leaders, for the, for, and anyway, our political leaders, we need to create a zone of emotional safety that allows them to say, yes, I was wrong about that. And you know what? I'm going to change what I do now in view of the new information that I have. And that is critical. It's actually thinking like a scientist. And in fact, I don't look at being wrong as necessarily a bad thing. It is something that I can learn from. I can then change and I can do, um, you know, policies for a country that can make a difference. Uh, We know you heard from all kinds of uh, people on Twitter, but uh, have you heard from your patients about this? Oh, absolutely. And I think what's happening right now is a lot of my patients are having a, a lot of COVID anxiety. I mean, it's become a diagnosis from, well, that's like a personal diagnosis that I'll use. And, and I think what's happening is there's, there's actually a grieving going on, a grieving of what the life once was. You know, it, whether that translates into a career or cooking for somebody or going out and just socializing, whatever that the self-definition was, is now, in a way, dead. It's gone. And so people go through those same stages of grieving, denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and then finally acceptance, that space in which we can establish new routines to replace the old. Have you been doing virtual consultations with your patients? Only, yeah. Oh, you And uh, are you busy with that? Is that like a full day of work? It is a full, full day of work. Yeah, so it's it's actually, it, what's interesting is that the same health problems that they had before are continuing, and now, you know, put on top of it all of the psychological and physical, you know, manifestations and worries of COVID. So it's, it's actually become very, very busy. What worries me about clinical practice is that I lose the ability to see them. Many of them I'm talking on the phone to. I lose the vital signs, which are called vital for a reason, and I lose the advantage of the physical examination. So I, I'm concerned about the potential for error in that space. What, what would you like to leave us with, uh, especially on your initial reaction to COVID? Let's give our leadership the intellectual agility, the emotional safety zone that they need to say, I was wrong. I want to do better. Let's try to understand this. Let's, let's try to concentrate on the separation of politics from pandemic preparedness. They're actually two very separate things. And in this sense, the World Health Organization, it would be wise to try to break that up. You know, we don't want politics to interfere with pandemic preparedness. They're actually two very separate things. It's yeah, like state and religion, that. kind of. Yeah, good, we good luck with that. We single unit worldwide as opposed to separate countries because the virus doesn't care if you're in Canada versus Taiwan. It's going to behave the same way. Family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel in conversation with Libby Snymer. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Our political leaders and public health experts have repeatedly been asked, when will we be able to begin reopening the economy? This past week, Premier Doug Ford backtracked on comments that we could start reopening around May 24th, later saying that is absolutely not going to happen. Ultimately, it will be up to the public health authorities to make the call.
So what has to happen before we start getting back to normal? Libby Snymer was joined on Wednesday by Dr. Joshua Tepper, president and CEO of the North York General Hospital here in Toronto. First of all, we're going to continue to want to look very carefully at the data. Uh, we're going to want to see that that flattening of the curve that we've seen over the last roughly 10 days or so continues uh, and that we aren't suddenly seeing an uptick or a change, uh, particularly outside of the long-term care homes. We know our shelters, our congregate living settings are really hot spots, but we want to be looking for outside of those hot spots as well. As well. So a, a continued flattening is number one. Number two is we're going to continue to want to look at our testing capacity, which is uh, steadily improved in terms of how many tests we can do and how fast we can get uh, the results back. And then the third thing is just a really careful consideration of how do we start to release things in a very thoughtful, careful, sort of titrated way or tempered way, and also with the ability that if needed, to be able to close it back down again, not what anybody wants but being able, if we have to, to take a step back. Do we have to have any period of time with no new cases, or, or is that kind of wishful? I think that's wishful, unfortunately. I, you know, I, I, I don't think going to zero is going to be probably the reality, at least not in the short term, uh, or even probably the medium term. Um, and for all we know, it may not be zero cases, may not even be a long-term goal. But what we do want to see is this sort of steady flattening and maybe even start to see a decrease uh, in the number of cases. So we want to, that, that, that's the key in, in the numbers that we're looking at and not seeing a, a rate of, you know, an increase that's exponential or anything close to it. We want to see that nice flattening that we've seen in recent times. There are a lot of people out there who are saying, uh, yes, create that iron ring around long-term care and let everyone else go back to work. What do you say to those people? Yeah. What I say is that there's a lot, there is still a lot of community spread uh, out there. Let's be clear that there is, you know, yes, our long-term care homes, some of them, not all, some of them are, you know, really in hot spots. But we should not be under the illusion that that means the rest of society is at zero. Um, and I think uh, if you look at places like Singapore and Japan in the last five, seven days, uh, we've seen places that have rapidly tried to return to normal and have seen very significant surges and, and devastating effects on the healthcare system, uh, being overwhelmed and, of course, people uh, being very unwell. So I, I think people are. That sort of binary, there's a community in a long-term care is a bit artificial. And this idea that the community is at zero and long-term care is hot is also an artificial construct. And uh, we continue to admit patients every day in our hospitals, including mine, uh, from the community, not long-term care uh, with COVID-19. So this has to be, as our premier said very wisely and thoughtfully, a very careful titrated, cautious return to normal, not uh, not a light switch on and off, but a very careful dimmer switch. As frustrating and as hard as it is, continue to abide by the social distancing uh, rules. Again, we're talking about a change in roughly a month's time. We've still got a month to get through. Mm -hmm. um, and and so we can't, we can't change our behavior today because we're excited about something that's going to happen in a month from now. And so we do have to double down. We should feel proud, I guess, of the number of Canadians who've been saved because of how hard we've collectively been uh, self-isolating and, and, and physically distancing. 
and and we need to continue. And people can't confuse what the Premier's talking about doing in four weeks with what people think they want to do this weekend. Dr. Joshua Tepper, President and CEO of the North York General Hospital here in Toronto. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. COVID-19 has forced the cancellation of elective surgeries and some cancer treatments in Ontario since a state of emergency was declared. If you've been bumped because of the pandemic, you're probably anxious to know when you can expect to be rebooked or what you can do in the meantime. On Thursday, Libby asked about these concerns when joined by Dr. Sean Bevan, Chief Science Officer at the Arthritis Society, Dr. Anish Kerpalani, radiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and cardiologist Dr. Harry Rakowski at the University Health Network. What is happening is twofold. So one is there is a reduction in care. If we look at heart attacks, where people who have heart attacks are usually smart enough to come to the hospital, but there's been a reduction of perhaps 20 to 80%, depending on where you are, of people presenting for emergency care for heart attacks. And so that's inappropriate. It's not just the reduction of care, it's the fear that people have that if they have something that otherwise they would have thought was urgent, they're afraid to come to the hospital because they're afraid of catching COVID, which they're very unlikely to do. So the two things are, one, be patient. That care will come back in a stage in an effective way. Two, if you're sick, come to the hospital. It's still very unlikely that you're going to catch the infection there. Okay, let's bring in uh, Dr. Carpolani. What is the impact of of the postponements uh, in your work? You know, in many cases, uh, you know, the issue is that people uh, are scared uh, and uh, they don't want to come into a hospital for fear of catching COVID. They don't uh, want to go to medical facilities or emergency rooms across the board, across the city. And, and, and I'm sure across the country have seen a dip in uh, the number of people coming in who need who, who need attention. Uh, and those people uh, who are coming in um, are coming in sicker um, because uh, they're waiting longer. Uh, they're afraid. Uh, and I think that uh, I completely understand uh, that sentiment, um, but we have to urge people that, uh, listen, if you have cancer, uh, if you have heart disease, if you have something that can't wait and shouldn't wait, um, that uh, you need to see your doctor. Uh, if you need to come into the ER, uh, you need to come into the ER. Uh, if you need to have imaging to support uh, and to guide uh, what's going to happen next for you, then um, don't wait, and uh, we should continue to do that. And we have um, all of these facilities, community clinics, um, uh, independent health facilities, hospital departments, have processes and policies set up to keep people safe. Let's bring in Dr. Bevan. What's the effect of having people, you know, wait even longer? The delays that we see right now, they were put in place for good reasons, but they certainly will have an impact on many different patients across the country. And so, you know, for people who are looking to have these joint replacements, um, to your point, we know that many of these surgeries aren't happening within the medically recommended wait times. Um, And, you know, right now we know that about 20% of those surgeries across the country for hip and knee replacements aren't happening within that six-month window in the first place. And, of course, there are huge regional and geographic disparities within that. And, you know, we heard from the first two callers about the real impact that that has on people's quality of life, pain, limited mobility, limited function, things like that. Uh, I guess the one thing that I would want to stress is that 
you know, while it's a very challenging situation for patients to be in where people have to wait even longer for these surgeries, there are things that people can be doing at home, you know, to help maintain their joints, do their best to maintain their mobility. Um, the number of tools and resources at arthritis.ca in Ontario, we're fortunate to have a physiotherapy program that the Arthritis Society runs. So, you know, during this uneasy time, there are things that people can think about as they're waiting for these joint replacement surgeries. Dr. Rakowski, do you see a situation where people's conditions might deteriorate? So, Libby, we're very concerned about this. <clears throat> Anecdotally, we know that there are people who have died of heart attacks because they didn't come in, people who have died uh, because of surgery that couldn't be done that was not urgent to the point that it was necessary in the next week or two, but semi-urgent and delayed. The challenge for hospitals, so we push on one end, hospitals push back because there's a lot of moving parts. It's not just saying, let's open the cath lab or let's do an ablation. It's how do you get people safely in the door and screen them? So there's a certain delay that is necessary until you get those moving parts in place. But the good news is, we really are on the cusp of doing it, and there is a triage system. But yes, the delays in care will have an impact. We don't know what that impact is other than the anecdotal evidence of certain bad outcomes. We'll measure it. But until we get the system back going, hopefully in the next week or two, uh, we're sort of stuck with this situation. Cardiologist Dr. Harry Rakowski at the University Health Network, Dr. Sean Bevan, Chief Science Officer at the Arthritis Society, and Dr. Anish Kirpalani, radiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Linda in Scarborough phoned to say how the pandemic has affected her scheduled health-related procedures. Well, I was booked actually for a total hip last October, and I developed cardiac issues, PVCs, many PVCs in a day. So my heart was, my hip was bumped at that point. I had a Holter monitor and echocardiograms done with a specialist at Sunnybrook who thinks I probably need an ablation at some time this year coming. I did go for a second uh, echocardiogram and Holter monitor a couple of weeks ago at Sunnybrook, and they were fabulous. The professionality of the staff and the the sterile um, conditions were, were fabulous. So I had that done, so I'm waiting for the results of that. But my hip was then booked again for May of this year, and then it was canceled again because of COVID. So, um... Yes, it is disappointing, but I think there's a lot more patients who are more um, critical than my cases. So I think the doctors usually, I think, would prioritize the cases and put them first. And the only thing I could say, Libby, is keep a stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on, and that's all we can actually do right now. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Norma in Mississauga, who phoned us twice. First to say she was concerned about the health and safety of her brother, whose roommate at Eatonville Care Center died with COVID-19. Norma later called to say, as a result of telling her story on Fight Back, which also got the attention of CARP, her brother is receiving much better care. I received a call on Monday evening that says from the executive director that says she will follow up 
And the first thing she will do is to get someone to shave him because that was the worst part of his condition. And I just received another call now from Eatonville Charge Nurse who said he is up in the chair after four weeks in bed. And she says he is in good spirit because he is now able to look out the window So I just want to say thanks so very much because I don't think anything would have been done for my brother if I had not brought it to the attention of your show. So at least I know he's looking partly like a human being and he's not positive. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.